Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. The weather may be finally starting to cool down in the south, but it was a hot, hot September. After a hot, hot summer. There's no denying it. And sure, some politicians may attribute a changing climate to, say, rocks falling into the ocean or something crazy like that. But among most people, there's increasing agreement that our climate is changing. So, what does that mean for the future of the South? Heck, what does that mean for the South's present? Those are some of the stories you'll find in Southerly, a nonprofit independent media organization focusing on ecology, justice, and culture in the South. Welcome back to The Reckon Interview. I'm your host, John Hammontree, and today we are talking with Lindsay Gilpin about how both the media landscape and the literal landscape of the South are changing. Lindsay founded Southerly in 2016 to fill a gap she saw in Southern journalism. We discussed the challenges of covering environmental issues in the South, what it takes to start your own publication, and how environmental journalism may cover more than you think. A lot more. So this week, how about you pop in your earbuds and take a walk outside while listening to the latest episode of The Reckon Interview. Okay, Lindsay Gilpin, thank you for coming on The Reckon Interview. Yeah, thanks for having me, John. You are the founder and the editor-in-chief of Southerly, an uh, online publication and a weekly newsletter. Can you tell us a little bit about what Southerly is, what its mission is, and how it got started? So Southerly is a new independent nonprofit online magazine that covers basically the relationship between people and their natural environments in the American South. So I define them, the South as all the way up through West Virginia, so all of Appalachia, mm-hmm. and down through Florida, you know, the Gulf Coast, and the eastern panhandle of Texas, their Houston area. We just had a story on Houston recently. And then kind of up through Arkansas. So 12 states, give or take, with yeah. some extra So does, it, some does extra Virginia make it in there? You've got West Virginia, so... Yeah. And so obviously encompassing a huge region that faces a lot of various environmental issues, you know, the impacts of climate change, agriculture, industry, the fossil fuel industry, coal industry that's in decline. And also, of of course, environmental justice and a lot of issues with pollution and environmental health around the region. So I actually, I started Southerly as an email newsletter at the end of 2016, At the time, I was out west at a magazine called High Country News, and we covered it covers the American West, and I was writing a lot about um, farming and climate change and sea level rise, that sort of thing. And it was obviously during the 2016 presidential election, and I was watching national reporters parachute in to southern places, and you know, blanketing the whole region as Trump country talking, you know, posting up at diners and at gas stations and right, <laughs> kind of asking right. As they often very do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Asking really 
simple, basic questions that, you know, they kind of knew the answer they would get about who people were going to vote for or what they were angry about, that sort of thing. And not digging into, as you might imagine, into the the complex issues that uh, this region faces. And obviously, that's just not a new phenomenon, right? It's been going on for decades and decades. uh, Mm -hmm. And most often with environmental issues, it's reporters come in after a coal ash spill or after a hurricane and kind of write the story and leave. And at the same time, there is a local news crisis, you know, all over the country. But in the South, it's very glaring because there are many rural areas and many, many low income rural areas around the whole region. And so I was sort of seeing these two things. And so at the end of 2016, after my fellowship ended, I decided to come home to Louisville, Kentucky, where I'm from, and start reporting about environmental issues, broadly speaking, in the South for national outlets, regional outlets. And then at the same time, I started Southerly as a as a newsletter. So every Thursday, I would send out kind of an editor's note of sorts that talked about a timely issue that was going on, whether it was a policy or a particular event in some state or, you know, spill of some kind or other timely issue. And then I would curate the best long-form journalism I saw from around the region that looked at, you know, this complex issue of how people are interacting with their natural resources and their natural environments. And then also drawing attention to local news outlets and overlooked events or news that was happening that no one was really paying attention to, to try to draw draw some more attention on it and shed light on injustices that, you know, no one was really seeing um, or that news was never kind of rising to the top of Google or whatever it was. Right, right. And so from there, I just, the subscribers kept growing and it's actually really awesome because I saw you all had, uh, you interviewed Margaret Wrinkle from the New York Times yeah. uh, last last week. And she wrote an op-ed about uh, Southern media last September-ish, I think. And that really like skyrocketed our subscribers and got a lot of people in the South, especially that that read her column, saw that Southerly was was a thing and was, was a new media organization in the region. And so after that, I had quite a few subscribers and just kept growing and wanting... My original goal from the beginning was to turn this into a, a publication. And so I just... The point of the newsletter was to build a community and see if people were interested in a magazine, an online magazine about these issues. And more importantly, I think, because it's about environmental issues, it often can be... <laughs> kind of gets the the reputation that it is, you know, very progressive or, you know, maybe people that are reluctant to talk about climate change, you might not want to read it. And from the get-go, my hope and my the, what I've, the way I've tried to frame climate change and other things is in a way that is more accessible to people that might, at first glance, not want to read a story about it. You grew up in Kentucky. You're living in North Carolina now. When you're speaking to people in your home state and in your new state, how do you persuade people on issues, particularly a state like Kentucky, where the coal industry is a economic foundation? It's a great question, and I'm constantly learning how to better or how to have more productive conversations in that way, you know, through my own reporting and also just seeing the story ideas that are coming in through Southerly. In both Kentucky and North Carolina, North Carolina is a little different because, especially since I'm in Durham, that's, you know, obviously a, a more progressive city in that way. Yeah. But in general, in the South, the conversation is too often about if people believe in climate change and what percentage of people believe in climate change and how is that how is that growing from last year or mm-hmm. where did it change and that sort of thing. And those, you know, those stories get the headlines every year. And 
I know a lot of people might disagree with me on this, but it's sort of ineffective to me at this point, right? Yeah. In a lot of ways, especially to the, the audience that I'm talking to in this region, because it doesn't really matter if people believe in it or not, it's happening. And I've found that more often coal miners or people living in Eastern Kentucky, where I, I lived recently, or people along the coast, you know, coastal North Carolina or South Carolina are willing to talk about flooding, right? Or, and how that's affecting their families or their health or their bank accounts. They're also willing to talk about you know, heat waves that are, that are harming their crops in Georgia or wildfires in Tennessee. And that to me is they're talking about climate change, right? And how it's affecting them or harming them. But we don't necessarily have to beat them over the head with, <laughs> with statistics or, or guilt them into action. So that is really important to me in this. And it's a challenging thing because, you know, at the same time, Southerly's running stories about climate change. And obviously, <laughs> very that is in to me, it's in the background of every single story, whether yeah. it's about the coal industry or, or a flood or whatever it is. But it is important in conversations, I think, to really see where people are at and meet them where they're at, because a lot of folks are, are really willing to talk about the effects of climate change without getting into the you know, very understandably, like, <laughs> politicized issue that is is abstract sometimes. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense if you're on the ground and trying to, like, live day to day and the everyone's arguing about what people are talking about at the United Nations. <laughs> and it's important. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we know that's important, but you, I try to understand where people are coming from oftentimes that that, that feels very abstract and, and far away. So I think that framing stories the way way I'm trying to with Southerly can move the conversation forward in a way that otherwise wouldn't have been able to. You know, I'm not as well versed in this as you are, but it seems like people often continue to think of climate change as something that is going to happen, that's something that's in the future. And, you know, you look at the stories in Alabama or in North Carolina and Kentucky and and it, in many ways, it's a story of how the climate is already changing, how it's affecting oyster beds in the Gulf Coast or how it's affecting the Outer Banks in North Carolina. In a recent issue of your e-newsletter, you, you had this idea that we need to broaden the definition of what environmental journalism is. And you were specifically talking about, in that, in that newsletter, about the uh, GM strikes, the general motor strikes, and how that can be an environmental issue. Yes, this is, this is my soapbox as of late. So, <laughs> well, step up on it. Yeah. So this is really important to me because like what I was just talking about earlier with meeting people where they're at on climate change and, and talking about issues they're seeing on the ground goes hand in hand with broadening environmental stories. You know, I think often we focus a lot on, are there enough environmental reporters or are there enough environmental stories coming out of any particular news outlet? particularly when we look at local news or regional news. And, you know, it's lacking. There's no one covering this. And to me, every story at this point, or many stories are environmental stories. Health is the best, one of the best ways in that I've found and that I've talked to many other journalists that have seen that if you talk about health and how, you know, clean air or clean water and how that's affecting people's health, making them sick or making their kids sick, that's a, a, a very effective way into a story that's about the environment, whether it's pollution from an industrial site or a spill from a chicken plant. And it also goes for business stories or, you know, stories about the insurance um, industry, which is changing rapidly because of climate change and sea level rise. 
or stories about how various industries are changing in relation to labor rights. So the GM strikes were obviously at, you know, it seemed kind of far away if you th- if you th- look at it at first glance, like, yes, okay, this is a huge labor strike, but what does that have to do with the environment? And I looked into it a little more and there was some great reporting out there about the electric vehicle industry and how as the, the auto manufacturers change how they're working and, and how their facilities are run because electric cars have less parts inside than regular cars. And that means less labor and less people to employ mm-hmm. that there's a whole host of issues with labor rights and how many workers and, and jobs. And that's an environmental story. And I think that connecting the dots on those things is is really important as we move forward because the problem up until now <laughs> is that we think of environmental issues as, or the general public kind of thinks of environmental issues as like over there. It's a thing that we should be concerned about, but it's not related to anything else we're right. doing. It's, it's the it's polar just, bears. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's on a lot of ways on the media for framing it like that for a long time. And I think that, especially when we look at funding for local news and newer organizations like Southerly, that, that's hard to, hard to find, right? And so- yeah. Where we can fill some of those gaps is turning a, a health story or a business story into sort of like in, intersecting with the environment in some sort of way and make it so that people are getting this information, readers are getting this information all the time, not just when we have a climate change story is coming out or the week, the like a couple weeks ago when a bunch of newspapers and news outlets published climate change stories all together. Like that's wonderful, but that needs to be happening all the time. Well, and then in today's issue of the newsletter. We're, t- we're talking on a Thursday, so one went out this morning. Yeah. You know, to, con- to continue that conversation even further, you point out that, you know, sometimes, uh, or one of, your, one of your reporters point out that sometimes environmental stories, or often environmental stories, end up being civil rights stories. And, mm-hmm. you know, that uh, a lot of the sites that are being devastated by a changing climate are historically black sites uh, or historically non-white sites. Mm-hmm. I guess I, I'm curious because it's an it's an inherently bold uh, endeavor you've taken on. You, you know, you <laughs> you are covering a third of the country, and not only is it an environmental newsletter, but you've kind of broadened it out to say, well, everything's an environment story. So, yeah, uh, right. <laughs> good luck. <laughs> um, right, no kidding. So, so, tell me a little bit about. What drove you to try to turn this into a, I assume, sustainable, viable new media outlet? I mean, you talked you talked a little bit about the struggles of of media in the South, as opposed mm-hmm. to going to the Courier J- Journal in Louisville and just being an environmental reporter there. The gaps I talked about, you know, with national media and also in local media, I think that there's a huge space for regional media right now. And, you know, people are very attached to the region that they're from, whether it's the West or the Midwest or the South. And there is such a, there is such a void and there's some great publications in the South cover uh, that are newer, you know, Bitter Southerner and Scalawag mm-hmm. have been around for several years and the Oxford American has been around for a long time and all of them are so wonderful. Um, and I have worked with, with some of them and, and communicate with them regularly, but they don't cover the environment consistently, right, all the time. And so there's sort of avoiding looking at, at these issues more broadly. And at the same time, one of the things that's really important to me with Southerly is connecting the dots between different parts of the South. 
Mm-hmm. So for so long, people in Appalachia who are facing the decline of the coal industry and you know environmental degradation from the coal industry or or health effects um, like you know contaminated water because of pollution have sort of felt isolated in this problem, like they're sort of facing it alone with their industry and don't communicate or don't maybe don't know that people along the Gulf Coast are are facing similar issues with the oil and gas industry. Or maybe farm workers in Georgia are facing similar problems of health or workers' rights with the uh, agriculture industry. And so Mm -hmm. I think connecting those dots is really important, and that can be done well by a regional outlet. And Southerly has the goal of doing that and also at the same time building a better media ecosystem in the South. And that means working with local news outlets on stories, which we've done a lot. Our first story, actually, when we launched this publication, it was about the lack of wastewater infrastructure in Lowndes County, Alabama, Mm -hmm. and how that's led to a rise in hookworm in the area. And that was with um, Melissa Brown at Montgomery Advertiser? Yes, yeah. So Melissa Brown at the Montgomery Advertiser wrote one of the stories. We did a series of four stories, and one of them, you know, covered more about climate change and environmental justice, and one of them she wrote about solutions that people were trying to come up with in the the community. And at the end, we had an event that we brought, like, 50 people in a room in a little community center in Lowndes County, and, you know, had a person from the health department and an engineer and then Melissa on the panel. And it wasn't anything novel, right? But it we it was like one of the first times that everyone had gotten in the room and talked about this issue. And I couldn't have done that without working with Melissa and working with a local news outlet that got the word out and helped me kind of get people in the room. So since then, I've tried to build that into the model of Southerly. So produce in-depth content on and environmental issues in this region, but also working with or allowing other outlets to publish our stories. So for instance, we wrote a, um, I had a reporter from Virginia write a story about the decline of coal severance taxes in Appalachia and mm-hmm. how that's led to services being cut off, like law enforcement just stop, they just quit working in one county because they weren't being paid enough. And um, healthcare was being cut, education, that kind of thing. So several... Appalachian newspapers, very small circulation newspapers, printed that story. And that was really exciting to me because otherwise they would not have otherwise had the resources to pursue that piece. Or maybe, you know, you don't have enough staff to pursue that piece. So, And it was one that, that reached a lot of people and impacted a lot of people. And so it's those sorts of partnerships that I think are really important that a regional outlet can do. So mm-hmm. we can fill some gaps in environmental reporting in this region, and at the same time, learn from people who are on the ground um, and get their expertise, whether it's through events or through their reporting, and also work together on bigger projects that, you know, since it's still a very small publication, like just me, (laughs) uh, (laughs) then it's a little difficult to do everything, even though I sometimes try. (laughs) Yeah, no, you've taken taken on a lot and done it very well every step of the way. Thanks. Now, you you went to school to do science and nature writing. So did you did you kind of have an idea? I mean, have you always been interested in writing about the environment? What drives that for you, other than the natural beauty of Kentucky, obviously? <laughs> so I'm one of the weird ones, and I knew I wanted to be a journalist when I was 11, which... <laughs> yeah, what happened so at young. 11? Um, I 
wrote a memoir about my grandmother who I never met, my mom's mom, who Mm. died when my mom was 13. And she was from Appalachia. She was from Eastern Kentucky. And I had seen pictures of her, you know, kind of in in the mountains and that she lived most her childhood and a little bit of her later uh, or teenage years in Appalachia. And so I wrote about her and this locket that my mom had, and it got published in the Courier Journal in Louisville. And at the time, I did not know it was the kids section, of course. (laughs) It's still very cool. Right, right. So it got published and I saw my byline and I loved writing stories. Mm -hmm. And I knew I wanted to be a journalist. And for many years, many people tried to convince me not to do (laughs) do journalism. But here I am. From there, I think that my curiosity about Appalachia in particular has led me to pursue environmental journalism sort of in a roundabout way. I did technology reporting after I went to grad school at Northwestern and I reported on the environment there a little bit, like Chicago River and invasive species and things like that. But I got back to Louisville and I was a technology reporter and I tried to write about renewable energy a lot, but those didn't get the most clicks. So (laughs) I couldn't do that too often. Um, And so that's when I moved out west and was like, this is the place I have to go to write about the environment, you know. And I was out there for a couple of years and doing that work, but realizing that the attachment to place, as much as I wanted it to be there at the time, wasn't there. It was was at home. And Mm -hmm. I think that that ties back to my relationship. You know, I'm not from Appalachia. I lived there briefly um, this year, but the attachment to home and roots and the beauty of of a place that is really misunderstood and misrepresented that brought me back so my bones kind of ached to come back to the south and that's that's really where yeah that's that's where all this started coming up Lindsay and i discuss how national media can do a better job covering the south and how you can support southerly who are alabama fans I think the Alabama fan base is easily the most passionate and concerned fan base in the country. They also are highly sensitive to what other people do and say. What does Alabama football really mean to them? At the end of the day, I, I would much rather go to the national championship and lose than go to any other bowl game. The podcast Bammers takes you inside the minds of Alabama football fans, their obsession with the Crimson Tide, and how far they take it year in and year out. Just because I dig a ditch from 8 to 5 and you graduated from the University of Alabama, that don't make you no better, no worse than me. Just search Bammers on iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts. Bammers, inside the minds of Alabama football fans. You mentioned in 2016 and 2017 all of the kind of Trump country pieces of the parachute Mm -hmm. journalists coming in and doing that. And there's definitely been a lot more of that. Uh, There was a piece about... Scranton just this week, I think. Yeah. But it also seems like there has been an emergence of authentic voices from the South and, you know, different voices from the South. You know, you, you've got uh, Trey Crowder from East Tennessee, who's yeah. you know, this, uh, the, the, the liberal redneck, as he calls it, Jasmine Ward in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. and My favorite. Yes, mine, mine as well. Uh, David Joy, and so you know, you, you do have these voices that are coming more and more to the to the forefront, and the rise of publications like like Scalawag, like you mentioned, and Bitter Southerner and Southerly, and I'll throw Reckon in the mix just for fun. And you know, I, I do think that at least regionally, at least on Twitter, you see everybody kind of band together anytime there's one of these parachute pieces and and put New York editors in their place. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, um, mm-hmm. What if somebody were coming to you? You know, if somebody from the New York Times were coming to you and wanted to do a piece on Kentucky or North Carolina, you know, what tips would you give them? Where would you point them? I, I get asked quite a bit from national reporters looking for sources or people to talk to in Kentucky or elsewhere in the South. And I appreciate that a lot because I don't know how often that that used to happen, but I feel like it happens pretty often now um, to sort of make sure that they're not stepping on each toes, that kind of thing. And Mm -hmm. my first reaction is to say, (laughs) let someone here do it, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Which is like the dream, right? But really, I think first is coming to the place and spending more than 18 hours here or whatever it typically is for a rush kind of reporting trip that you have to do sometimes, you know, it has to, to, to be invested in a place and to understand a place you can't, you know, you obviously can't do it in a few days, but it helps to be here for like three days more than it does for a a few hours. And also really letting the people in the place you're reporting have the authority in what they're saying and speak for a place that they 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 know where they live and they know what its faults are. Sometimes they don't want to admit it, but yeah. you know, people are intelligent and I think we a lot of times journalists underestimate how much people know about the places they are and the and the complex like political and social and racial issues that are in those places. And so to me it's it's really important for if a national media or a national reporter comes in is to to sort of let let people give their opinion or you know give their, their say their piece and mm-hmm. you know it might not all be used for a quote but I, I feel like a lot of times the story is sort of written before they hit the ground and being more open to to where the story could take them um, would go a long way like oftentimes I ask people what when I'm reporting what they think is missing from the conversation especially if it's an issue that has been covered a lot, for instance, like the Black Jewel protest mm-hmm. in Eastern Kentucky right now, where their block miners are, that were laid off are blocking a coal train and have been for more than two months. There's been a lot of reporting on that, uh, which is great, and I think it's important. I, I spoke to someone recently on the ground and, and just asked, "What sort of angle has not have you not seen on this?" And I think people aren't asked that enough. Because they they see all this media coverage, especially if the national media gets in on it, you know, and kind of all of them run <laughs> run a, a version of the same story, and uh, and so I think that that's a really valuable way to figure out what people want to see, um, or maybe what we haven't thought of. Yeah, well, and you know, I'm just speaking for myself now because I there are <laughs> definitely times where I get very annoyed uh, with yeah. kind of tone deaf national reporting, but then you know there are times where it. Uh, even even when they get it wrong, it can help to apply pressure. I think, oh, particularly definitely. about the uh, University of Alabama and the desegregation of the sorority system that happened in 2013, yeah. and you know the uh, student reporters and the local reporters they'd covered that for decades, and it wasn't really until it started getting picked up by the Gawkers and the Jezebels and the Washington Post where the University of Alabama started to realize, oh, this is a national thing and could help mm-hmm. hurt us with our uh, national recruiting, and and took steps to. To change their behavior, so I do. I do appreciate that aspect of it. I mean, particularly, you know, you look back at the civil rights movement and things like that. But oh, definitely, you're right in terms of if everybody's just writing the same story, looking for those angles. And I and I think that 
regional publications and, and local publications are often better positioned to do that. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think sometimes the, it's exciting to see the partnerships between the New York Times, say, and the Times-Picayune in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Or Times-Picayune, New Orleans advocate. I think that's exciting to see because the Times-Picayune people have the on-the-ground expertise and they've been reporting on sea level rise and coastal resilience for so long. Uh, but the New York Times offers so much in the way of data and photography and resources and people. Uh, and I think that that can be used for so much good, those kinds of collaborations. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it, I'm sure it can, it's difficult. I've done a few <laughs> just collaborations in general and like they can be messy and confusing. And I know that that probably is more so when you have more, more staff like that, but it is, it is cool to see that happen, especially if sort of the local paper or outlet can take sort of the reins, at least on the reporting aspect of it. And it can turn into a, a, a super impactful piece. And you publicize and, and pride yourself on paying freelancers very well, which, you know, frankly, I think people would understand as a new nonprofit if you if you couldn't pay freelancers as well. So um, tell me about why that in particular is important to you. I mean, you, you yourself often rely on, on freelance in order to sustain your own livelihood. So can you talk a little bit about both being an editor but also being a freelancer yourself? So when I started Southerly... And, and ever since, I, I keep thinking that in order to build a publication that writes about, you know, how we can have a more just and equitable place that we live in this region and help inform people to make decisions to get to that future, it wouldn't be right to do that without trying to build Southerly in the same, in an equitable way. Mm-hmm. And that's really difficult when you don't have money. <laughs> <laughs> As you might imagine. But yeah. so from the beginning, I um, I started f- having freelancers right after probably the end of last year and ramped up publishing a, a more this year. So we're, it was two stories a month-ish and now it's three, three or four um, are headed towards, which is great. But from when we I originally set out the, the pitch submissions page on the website, I posted the rates on there. Because as a freelancer, it's so annoying when you, when you are like trying to figure out if it's worth pitching a place and, you know, you go through the whole process and then someone's like, here's 300 bucks. Right. That's all we can do. And so I wanted and you'll to get make it in sure. six months. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or longer. And I, and I, as a freelancer for the last couple of years, I know, I know how incredibly frustrating that is. And also I, I can't pay as much as I want. And I think there's a huge conversation in the industry, right? Of what even is like we pay per word, but that doesn't really count for your time. (laughs) Like a dollar a word is not, it evens out to like a very low hourly rate. And so it's interesting to see those conversations happen. And so I I wanted to pay better than I was being paid by a lot of major publications that could definitely pay more. So I, you know, it's it's 750 for 1200 to 1600 words ish. And we pay more for longer than that. I think that that's a that's a better rate than I've seen in a lot of places. Yeah, and sure. obviously, like I said, not as much as I, I want to do. But part of all of this is growing southerly, like I said, in a sustainable way and slowly. So I'm not trying to turn out a bunch of content that is just like, I hope sticks. I really want to do this right. And I honestly don't know how to do it right because no one does. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, we're all figuring <laughs> as, it out. As we've seen. 
Like I have no clue, but I do know that I, I want really talented reporters and writers that are, that we've had that are from all over the region and are interested in what we're doing and also working with newer and younger writers that are coming up and don't have the opportunity to maybe write for a national publication because they're, you know, seen as too, too green. Right. And, uh, and I think that Southerly offers a really good space to, you know, it's a, it's a lot, it's a lot of work on me sometimes, but, um, or could be, but I think it's worth it to sort of build, build a community of reporters and journalists in that way. And I want people from the affected communities to write, you know, more people of color to write about the places that they are living or the places that they know or the communities that they're from, because you can still parachute in, you know, within a region. And I think it's important to, to really consider that and a diversity in writers and also in obviously what you're covering. Yeah, you can parachute in within a city. I mean, you know, yeah, exactly. it happens all the time. Ex- yeah. yeah, happens all the time. And that's a really complicated thing to like start a publication and try to tackle all of these things at once, but it can be done. And I just am really trying hard to to work towards that. And I hope it's sort of happening. <laughs> do you have a, uh, do you have a general sense of where you want to be uh, by the end of next year, by the end of five years from now, are you kind of growing it towards towards specific goals, or are you you know taking partnerships as they come, taking grants as they come? What what's your short term plan, and then you know long term, where do you want to see Southerly? What, I, what my dream is, okay, five years from now, is there are correspondents throughout the South. So you have somebody in the Delta, somebody along the Gulf Coast, somebody covering Florida, people covering Appalachia. I don't know. Maybe you have an idea for this. I want somebody that it covers the parts of like Tennessee and Kentucky that aren't Appalachia. And I don't know what that's called. Well, there's, yeah, Tennessee's so long. uh, And like Northern, you know, like Alabama, Arkansas, like there's all this kind of general, like central middle South area. That's like not really a, doesn't have a name. Um, Memphis calls it the mid South. So that's that's the the mid South region. Okay. Well, I might borrow that. So I went correspondence throughout the region is the point. And to be reporting, you know, several stories a month and working on longer investigative and in-depth multimedia kind of projects. And I want to make sure that that content is available to local news outlets and that they are collaborating on those, whether it's with their editing team or their, you know, video team, or maybe their reporters and our editors and sharing this the projects in that way so that more people can be exposed to these stories. And so that is an awesome dream. And my grander scheme is to build a better media ecosystem, like I said, in this region by doing that and, and working together more kind of towards this goal of getting information out to rural areas where we can write as many stories as we want about climate change affecting historically African-American sites in the South, but if they're not getting into the hands of people in those places, that's really, to me, not serving the main mission. And that's that's hard to do without, um, I think, more of a collaborative effort. So that's the major goal. And I'm sort of fundraising around that idea, trying to, because I don't, like I said, I don't know how to fix this whole, you know, depressing state of journalism. But <laughs> I think that like maybe it could, this could be a way into that and also move the needle on trust in journalism a little bit when, mm-hmm. you know, we are communicating more with the people we're writing about. So in the short term, I'm, I'm working on shorter grants. I am still the only, I'm not, I don't even call myself an employee because I'm not paid. So <laughs> I'm editing and fundraising and uh, 
finding writers and doing social media. And I have all kinds of wonderful pro bono help from editors <laughs> and friends in the industry that I'm so thankful for. So I'm scraping by kind of on my own freelancing. Uh, I haven't gotten to do much reporting lately, which, you know, like when you haven't done it in a while and you just have an itch and you're yeah. like, I just need to do it. So mm-hmm. uh, I kind of have been feeling that lately because it's been so long. But I do... Uh, kind of my steady gig is like a newsletter uh, that I put out for Southeast Energy News. Uh, their Energy News Network is the is the website. And so I do that every morning and that's sort of my steady gig. And then I freelance on the side. But I think freelancing, freelancing and starting a magazine, like I would not recommend it for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I really wouldn't recommend it. Um, it's exhausting. But I do think that if, having freelanced a lot recently and knowing a lot of people who are doing it in the South and, and elsewhere around the country gives me a better sense of how to build a publication that is uh, that can can be better than a lot of the, the ones many people are writing for um, as far as how they're treating their writers and that sort of thing. Well, and, and listening to you describe the um, sort of five-year goal of this, I was just immediately struck by the comparisons to the uh, Southern Education Desk of the middle of the 20th century, where mm. right after Brown versus Board of Education, there was kind of this consortium of writers all around the Southeast that were chronicling and gathering data on the desegregation process and trying to do so in a um, in as nonpartisan a way as possible and, and making those resources available to everybody. And, you know, you think about that uh, and how that led to the kind of civil rights beat and the race beat, as it was called back then. Yeah. And, you know, the way that that changed the South, but also changed journalism in the South, that you, you look at climate change and the changing environment and the changing economy that goes with that. And it seems like if you are able to execute your vision, this would have a uh, similar effect on Southern media, one would hope. Exactly. That's such a good comparison. I hope that that, that can be the thing because, <laughs> you know, the, this region just faces massive ecological and political and social challenges. You know, it's experiencing huge economic shifts because of the decline of fossil fuels. It's the fastest urbanizing area of the U.S., the South is, but home to some of the most economically distressed communities. And that's only going to get worse as the climate changes. And yet we have people in power, in political and economic power in this region that are at this local level and at the state level and also at the federal level that still attempt to halt progress on you know, climate adaptation and renewable energy and conservation and public health and environmental justice. And so you know, this isn't going away. It's only going to become more acute. And more people are going to feel the effects of how our world is changing. You know, it's going to change all over the the country, but the South is sort of the guinea pig in a way, right, with with climate change right now. And I I think it's really important to think about how to cause a a shift in understanding with sort of a, a network like we were just talking about so that we can, you know, hold people accountable that should be held accountable and also do a lot of education in the process. Well, if you are listening and you want to support Lindsay's mission, if you like everything that she said, you should go to southerlymag.org and donate. You can make monthly donations. You can make one-time donations. You can make anonymous donations. To close, I think this question kind of comes up a lot, particularly if you're living in a state like Alabama or, or Kentucky, where the, you know, you were talking about the political leaders, where the political leaders are not necessarily doing all the right things on mm-hmm. on climate issues. You cover these topics. You're deeply versed in them. What can 
our listeners do on an individual level to help forestall the effects of climate change? And then what should they expect and, and push for on a on a state level and on a federal level that would be within the realm of the possible, I think? How, how should they phrase things for, you know, for a Senator Mitch McConnell or a uh, Senator Richard Shelby to listen to? Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, reading and being educated on these issues and how they're affecting vulnerable people and places is in sort of better understanding or trying to better understand those that are that are most affected by these issues, even if they are completely different from you or in a different state or in a different part of the state. I think that's that's always important and we can all do a better job of that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm so bad at answering the question of like, how can you make a difference in with sometimes with environmental issues, I get a little cynical, but, um, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> it's okay to be cynical. Too. but I think that being educated and also voting, right. Is, yeah. is really critical. I think oftentimes in, I'm sure this is in Alabama as well, especially in Kentucky, it, it feels sort of pointless to vote. If you're more progressive, because there's like, well, it's not gonna, it's not gonna swing the state or anything, and I think that's not true, especially now. Like in Eastern Kentucky, people know the coal industry isn't coming back, and they are uh, mad at Mitch McConnell about it, and so there's shifts happening that I think um, becoming more more involved in that way in voting and um, and thinking about kind of the the changes they're having, even though they don't feel like they are sometimes, is super important and everyone can do a good job at that and improve on that. And yeah, and I know that it for a lot of people in Alabama and Kentucky, it uh yeah, it can be incredibly it can be incredibly <laughs> frustrating sometimes, right? Like Jasmine Ward has one of my favorite quotes that just said, the South is a place she loves more than she loathes. And so I think always keeping that in mind. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> if you live here, is oh, those are good words to live by because it can make you mad, but you can also do a lot of things individually to better educate yourself and your neighbors and other people and sharing information and, and keep talking about it because I think oftentimes we um, kind of get in our silos and, and don't communicate. And there are small victories occasionally. Oh, yeah. No, there are tons of small victories. One of them actually, so we held a, an event in Eastern Kentucky in Pikeville, just about news coverage. And we, we did a lot of work on media literacy, just explaining what journalism was with people. There were some, there were a lot of older people there, um, some with black lung disease and former minors, especially. And so we talked about the reporting process and worked with a couple of local reporters in the area to do so. And then talked more about like, the economic issues that people wanted to see covered, coal's impacts on the land and water. And at the end, this woman came up to me and she said, she had grabbed my arm and she said that, she was like, thank you so much for doing this because I, I don't know the last time I've gotten in a room with people like this or to talk about issues that we want to see. And, you know, it wasn't anything crazy that was said in the meeting, but to me, that is just a perfect example of a small victory, like moving the needle on trust just a tiny, tiny bit. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, with with journalists and with people they see a lot of the times reporting on their communities and also kind of bringing people together into a conversation rather than just throwing information at them. And so I, I like to think of that when I do all this work. Well, thank you so much, Lindsay, for taking the time to chat with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This is great. Hey. 
And that's the episode, folks. Thank you again to Lindsay Gilpin. If you enjoyed our conversation, go to www.southerlymag.org right now and sign up for their newsletter. Plus, make a donation so they can continue to tell great stories. This week's episode was produced and hosted by yours truly, and it was edited by the terrific team over at Edit Audio. Our show's theme song, Dereconstructed, is produced by Sub Pop Records, and it was written and performed by Lee Baines III and the Glory Fires. If you like our show, please subscribe and give us a review on Apple Podcasts and share the show with your friends. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. And go to www.al.com reckon to sign up for our newsletter and stay up to date on all the latest news in Alabama and around the South. And until next time, thanks for reckoning with us.